Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 18. We're going to start in uh, verse 21 there and go through um, uh, chapter 19, verse 9. And the text is also printed in the bulletin. And hopefully you grabbed one of those bulletins on your way in there over here on the table if you need one. Um, So we're in a section of uh, several chapters of Revelation uh, that that talk about Babylon, the great city, Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. Um, I figured we really only needed one sermon on the mother of prostitutes (laughs) on the harlot Babylon. Uh, So we're skipping a lot here. We're skipping uh, all of chapter 17 and most of chapter 18, which really are uh, just thematically all uh, connected. But actually, this section isn't just about the harlot city Babylon. Uh, we see the um, faithless Babylon here contrasted with the faithful city, with the true bridal city, the church. Um, and so as we, as we enter into the final m- m- major section of the book of Revelation, the focus is shifting to the heavenly city of God's people as it's being revealed, the heavenly city, the church, the victorious church, uh, uh, she's victorious in her faithfulness to Jesus. That's who the church is uh, as seen here toward the end of the book of Revelation. So there's a lot uh, to talk about in our passage, so we need to get started. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, you've given us your word because you love us, because you want us to know you and to become more like you. So we pray that you would help our relationship with you to grow as we consider this word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So throughout our study in the book of Revelation, we've consistently interpreted it as mainly addressing the problems that the early church was facing, the problems they experienced with persecution uh, from the Roman Empire, but especially from unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. That was sort of the main enemy of the early church, was unbelieving Jews centered in Jerusalem, centered around the the temple, the worship, the activities uh, that continued there. Uh, In this section, Jerusalem is referred to as Babylon, the, the fallen city, the condemned city, the judged city. That interpretation probably deserves some explanation here. Uh, maybe you haven't heard that interpretation of the, uh, the symbol of Babylon. Good Christians and scholars disagree on the meaning of that symbol, and I think uh, uh, even though we disagree, we, we still share a lot in common and can apply this passage uh, well. But uh, some think that Babylon here is a symbol for the Roman Empire. Some think Babylon is a symbol for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Some think that Babylon is a symbol for the city of man, like generically, uh, rebellious humanity in general who are opposed to God and enemies of God's people. Each of those interpretations has something going for it, and uh, at least they all agree that Babylon is is bad, right? (laughs) Uh, Babylon represents a major enemy or threat to God's true people in Christ's church. But what enemy does Babylon represent? Why use the symbol of Babylon at all? What is Babylon? Um, Well, you can read a lot about Babylon in the Old Testament. The Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem uh, several hundred years before uh, Christ and the Apostles and uh, and this letter, uh, the book of Revelation, was written. They conquered Jerusalem and they carried the Jews into captivity in three waves of deportation beginning in 597 B.C., uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar. You read a lot about that in the prophets and in the book of Daniel. Um, Babylon was the juggernaut villain of the Old Testament. Uh, they were the most powerful and violent archenemy that the people of God had ever faced. But the history of Babylon goes, goes back long before they, uh, as a city or as an empire, invaded Jerusalem. In Hebrew, uh, which is the primary language of the Old Testament, the word that's translated Babylon, uh, something like over 200 times, uh, the word is literally Babel. Uh, it's, it's Babel. Babel, Babel, uh, Babel, I don't know how you want to pronounce it. Uh, that, that was that early city from Genesis 11 <clears throat> that David read in our Old Testament reading, where the peoples, they cooperated in the first great humanistic project of building a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves, in order to unite the peoples, uh, actually to do that, to stand against God, to do that without any reference to God, to reach to the heavens without reference to God. So Babel, translated Babylon so many times in the Old Testament, uh, Babel means gate of God. And the city with its tower was a statement of human intention to rush the gates of heaven, to access the divine in our way, in our own way, on our own terms, by our own genius and strength. And so the tower was a symbol of human autonomy and a symbol of self-glorification. It was a symbol of false unity. Apart from the kingdom of God, it was a godless alliance toward a godless exaltation. So it was a way of saying, we don't need God in order to reach heaven. We don't need God in order to bring heaven to earth. 
But there's no such thing as as heaven on earth apart from God. There's no such thing as heaven apart from God. Being with God is what makes heaven what it is, and true life is found only in him. It's found only with him. So, back then in Genesis 11, God thwarted the Babel project, and not because he wants to suppress humanity or keep us out of heaven, but precisely because he wants heaven for us, which means he wants us to be with him, and he wants to be with us, and not not to be without him. He has better plans in store for humanity than the hollow glory of autonomy and self-exaltation. Nevertheless, Babylon continued to to coalesce itself over the centuries as a city and then eventually as an empire, looking to absorb all peoples, whether by common agreement or by force, into its self-exaltation program. So as such, it was the enemy of the true kingdom of God. Now, if John, in Revelation, only spoke of this enemy simply as Babylon then uh, we'd probably be justified interpreting that symbol to represent a wide range of the enemies of the kingdom of God. But there's a particular feature of this Babylon, the way John talks about it, that's repeatedly emphasized in these chapters, really a big theme throughout these chapters. Babylon is a harlot. Babylon is a a prostitute. She's the mother of prostitutes. It says in chapter 17, verse 5. And in the Old Testament, that designation... Harlot, it refers to the spiritual adultery of God's own people. The Romans were not God's own special people, chosen from all the nations, breaking their covenant relationship with God, the faithless bride, committing spiritual adultery through their sin. That doesn't describe the Romans. It describes Israel. Israel had been called God's bride. That was her great place of honor in the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 45, which we read uh, in our first uh, prayer this morning. Places like the Song of Songs celebrate the glory that was intended for this relationship between God and Israel. The glory that was intended, this, this intimate spiritual union between God and his chosen people that's represented with this relationship, the, the bridegroom and the bride. So it's because of the special nature of the relationship between God and his people that when Israel sinned, God was being betrayed in a special and terrible way. And the prophets addressed this betrayal uh, several times in terms of Israel's harlotry, her prostitution, her faithlessness. You can read about that in places like the book of Hosea. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 is pretty vivid. It's really strong stuff. Because God wanted to convey the betrayal of his people with the strongest language, and there's nothing like being betrayed by a faithless spouse. It's the relationship where there's supposed to be the deepest intimacy, and the violation of that relationship is so personal, it's utterly devastating. God had been promising his beloved people for centuries that he himself would come to them as a bridegroom coming for his bride. He taught them to prepare to receive him with the same heightened anticipation as a bride on her wedding day. But when he arrived in the flesh, his bride rejected him. His bride violated that special relationship and spurned his love. His bride 
sought her life and her good apart from God in the arms of other spiritual lovers besides the bridegroom. His people, Israel, they got into bed with Rome in order to betray their own Messiah, Jesus, the bridegroom. And they stayed in bed with Rome as they persecuted Christ's people, the church, his, his beloved, the true bride. Jerusalem was the harlot Babylon because of their, their deep betrayal. And Revelation 17 and 18 describes that betrayal in this symbolic language. She fancied herself to be the queen of the world, filling her golden cup with the blood of the martyrs, drinking human blood, the blood of the saints, holy blood which in the Old Testament, drinking blood is something you don't do. It's an abomination. This is the abomination that brought about her desolation, her drinking the blood of the martyrs. So Jerusalem's light would be extinguished, and all the bustling and buzzing of life and music in her walls would fall silent, and all the joy and glory of relationships would be gone forever. That's what our passage says. And as the harlot Babylon fell, the true bride would rise. Everything Israel was meant to have in, in communion with God, intimate communion with God, the true bride would have in the Spirit of Christ. Everything Babylon tried to achieve apart from God, heaven on earth, peoples united under one banner, the glory of a good name, all of this would be given instead to the church, the heavenly city, by the grace of God. So it says in verses 7 and 8 of uh, chapter 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the difference between the harlot Babylon and the true bride, the, di the difference is faithfulness. Harlot Babylon rejected Jesus when he came, the true bride embraces Jesus, gives herself to Jesus, prepares for him with anticipation like a bride preparing for the wedding day. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, in these terms several times, really, but uh, especially in the parable of the wedding feast. You can find it in Matthew 22. And I'll read that parable. It says, Jesus uh, said that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
So you're blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But unless you're properly dressed in your wedding garment, you don't belong. And that wedding garment is described here in Revelation in our passage as fine linen, bright and pure, the righteous deeds of the saints. That wedding garment is is described here as your devotion, your faithfulness to Christ as the bridegroom of, of the church. So before you get upset about that idea too much, let me assure you this does not mean you have to live in sinless, spotless perfection. Bad and good are invited to this wedding feast. The scriptures are clear everywhere that in Christ there's forgiveness of sins. The righteous deeds of the saints with which the true bride clothes herself just means an interest in Jesus that results in a new life. It's one where you grow in holiness and righteousness. You grow, which means you've still got a ways to go. That's going to be true throughout your whole life. You're going to be growing in holiness and righteousness. You're going to be growing in your ability to give testimony to the salvation that's found in Christ. And you're just going to persevere in that faith. You're going to persevere in faithfulness to the end. God doesn't love you because you're beautiful. God's love makes you beautiful as you respond to His love. And the beautiful clothing being your response, it's it's your responsiveness to Jesus. And the wonderful thing about this clothing then is your response to Jesus is that God is praised for the one who gives it to you. God is praised as having granted it to His bride to clothe herself in it. The song doesn't go, how wonderful and how awesome is the bride, right? That's not the song, the loud song in heaven. How awesome is the bride for having made herself beautiful in God's sight. The song doesn't boast about the righteous deeds of the church as if she were glorious in and of herself, as if she had achieved that beauty herself. The song praises God. The song gives God the glory for making it possible for the bride to become beautiful through her union with Jesus. Jesus is glorified in his bride. That's a huge theme through the book of Revelation. Maybe it's the main theme in the book of Revelation. Jesus is glorified in his bride. That's the gospel. Revelation's about believers and about martyrs becoming conquerors and kings, not just through their own effort and willpower and um, persistence. Revelation is about the exaltation of the bride of Christ who reflects the glory of the bridegroom himself. Jesus is worthy of the bride's affection. Jesus is worthy of our affection. Jesus is worthy of our devotion and of our longing and of our faithfulness and our excited preparation. Jesus captivates and inspires his people to live with him and to live for him, even though all the world were against us. Jesus equips his people with the spirit of power and love and a sound mind to live without fear, to face every kind of suffering and persecution. Jesus is the bridegroom who makes it possible for the bride truly to become beautiful through her relationship with him. And it's only in union with him, with the bridegroom, abiding in him, being washed by the water of his word, communing with him through his spirit, It's only in union with him that we could hope to be found faithful, his true bride, welcome at his banqueting table. So what does this mean, and how how can this gospel play itself out in our lives? Uh, 
We're tempted to play the harlot Babylon. That's what we're tempted to do when we look for life apart from the God who's called us to himself. Only God's special people could play the harlot Babylon and betray him in such a painful way. So the warning about Babylon, that fallen city, that condemned city, it stands especially for us. It's not just for those people out there, it's for us. There are temptations that we face as the church to sidle up to one political party or another in order to find shelter, in order to find power or influence. There are temptations that we face to compromise ourselves with the sexual ethic of the culture. There are temptations that we face to get cozy with the false god Mammon and everything he promises. And so on. There are these temptations. And this is a call to forsake all spiritual lovers but the true bridegroom. Open yourself up to Jesus. Make yourself ready to Jesus. Stay faithful to Jesus. Sing the songs of Jesus. Claim your association with Jesus. What true bride was ever ashamed of her bridegroom? What true bride wants to keep secrets from her bridegroom? What true bride is happy to be parted from her bridegroom? What true bride sought a better companion than her bridegroom? Your bridegroom has laid down his life for you, and he's made a place for you to be with him forever in God's presence. Jesus is worthy of your faithfulness. So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory by clinging to him and staying true to him to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, fix our eyes on the bridegroom, on Jesus. Make him our greatest hope and expectation and delight. Keep us in your love and and in his love by the power of your spirit. Purify us in the truth of your word. And grant that we might become beautiful in our faithfulness, that our lives would truly change because of our union with Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.